So we made it. The last evening together in this particular Sangha, this particular configuration. I felt, uh, just when I was walking up toward the altar, I felt an unexpected wave of emotion uh, because there is a sense of walking, walking through a field of merit. And it's really great good fortune to be in a field of the kind of merit that we are in and that is um, being cultivated here. And, you know, you, you all really touch our hearts as teachers. We're, we're here doing this because of our love of the Dharma and because of your practices. And so there's just a real uh, respect and satisfaction that I carry. Uh, and my Dharma sisters up here with me probably would say the same thing that, um, that I carry and that we, that we carry in uh, being part of your journey in this way. So just like the container's changing and you're in a process of integration, we are too. So my mind feels a little bumbly tonight still. I think I just want to begin by take, inviting you to just take a moment to, if your eyes are closed, to open them and just, just to look around the room a little bit, just to let your heads and necks, you don't have to do any Sufi eye gazing. And just, <laughs> <laughs> just take a moment to both sense yourself and sense the others around you. So sensing being aware of me and being aware of we. I can imagine the range of feeling that might be that might be in the room. Some of you I know are ready to bolt on out of here. You know, you might have felt that way since the first day of your retreat. <laughs> and some of you might be quite reluctant actually to come out of the silence and be in a more relational uh, format. And in many ways, this is the heart of the retreat whether you're here for a month or whether you're here for two months, in, in a sense, you're at the middle of your retreat because the rest of your retreat, the second half of your retreat, begins when you leave the property tomorrow and you go into your life. So you can really sense that. You know, you've got another month or two <laughs> of, of retreat and life is like an open retreat, isn't it? There are no bells every 45 minutes and you have to make your own food. (laughs) 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 And so tonight, um, I want to share a little bit about what might be helpful for you as you travel into the rest of your life and you've received everything you really need to know. You know, there does not need to be more profound, dense teaching tonight because you've gotten a lot of teachings during this time. And as you go back home, the instructions are the exact same as they have been when you've been here practicing. You know, what's happening now? Presence, kindness, curiosity. And so I'm just going to share some of my own reflections and pointers and voices of others. And I'd like to begin by going back to where we started the first night of the, what we're calling the March Retreat, which actually began the last week of February. And in the opening talk, there were three qualities that uh, you were invited to practice with and cultivate 
during these past four weeks, and in particular as we have explored this terrain of liberative, dependent, or rising. And those three qualities are stability, well-being, and confidence. You remember that coming out of Gil's mouth? Yeah. As you landed, stability, well-being, and confidence. These are essential qualities to enter into a retreat like this, and these are essential qualities to carry with you in your lives and to support your realization, what you actually understand here, to support your realization to become an actualization. So it's not just something you know, but, but that this is coming into your being. We, we actualize what we realize. And I spoke last week about the fire sermon, Buddhist teaching about everything being on fire. I talked about the senses and contact and what happens in the mind and essentially being on fire in the world, being on fire, burning, burning, powerful word. What that evokes in us, burning with the fires of confusion, the fires of greed and hatred and delusion. And our world is burning with fires, you know, with fires of all the isms of sexism and racism, homophobia, you know, consumerism to the point where we sort of need another planet to keep up with the level of consumption. Our, this beloved planet, the climate has changed because of human-caused activities. I was, I'm always curious about the species that are going extinct and I like to learn a little bit about them so they aren't just abstractions, but so they're actually real to me. And I was, I was learning about seven species that are particularly imperiled with climate change and I'm just going to name them here. The polar bears, which you, you know that story. And uh, orange spotted filefish which are these fish that are sensitive to warm water. They, they dwell um, in coral habitats, and coral is another one of the life forms that is, you know, really in trouble. The quiver tree of South Africa in Namibia. The Adele penguin, which live on krill. And so as the oceans heat up, there's not enough krill for them to thrive. The golden toad and harlequin, harlequin frog of Central America are no more. They're extinct. And I just learned about this creature. I'd never heard of a Bramble K. Malomi, <laughs> which um, is like a rat that, um, that lived in the area of the Great Barrier Reef. And, and as the ocean level's rising, they kind of, their habitat basically got washed out. So... As our planet, you know, warms up, there's also a disproportionate impact of the planet heating up on people who are living in poverty and people who have brown and black skin. And I'm just speaking about this in the spirit of connection. You know, we don't practice here in isolation. What we are doing here is profoundly connected to the web of life of which we are a part. What you do here matters in ways you can't even begin to know yet. You know, and just like, um, just like what happens in the world touches you and makes a difference for you and impacts you, you know, what, what's happening through you touches the world, impacts the world because of this profound truth of our relatedness, which is in one, one way of framing the, the, the deepest insight of what the Buddha awoke to. There is no separate self. Rumi, the great poet, wrote, sit, be still and listen, because you're drunk and we're on the edge of the roof.
kind of hits close to home, doesn't it? So, this is a time of extraordinary challenge and there's, there's no way around it. And, you know, it's a challenge and opportunity to be alive in this unprecedented time in Earth. And, you know, you've probably considered, I've considered, you know, what's, what's being asked of you to have the conditions where you're able to sit a one-month or a two-month retreat where you have been looking directly at suffering, directly at the cause of suffering, directly at um, the end of suffering. You know, like, wow, <laughs> you've, been, you've been looking directly, directly, and... You know, and our awakening is bound up together. There's individual liberation, there's collective liberation, and you have some of the very best skillful means of anything I've ever known about in my life. <laughs> the skillful means offered through the, the practice of the Dharma is, um, I was thinking about like, you know, I've had my own share of suffering, of course. I mean, nothing like what many beings have endured, but I was just thinking about my own measure of challenge in my life and how much harder it would have been if I wasn't on this path in my 20s and in my 30s. And hmm. So, as we mature on the path, there's you know, just like less of a line between now I'm on retreat, now I'm off retreat. Life is happening, whether there are conditions of the bells and the quiet, or whether you're at home on Netflix in your bathtub, whatever you do. <laughs> so, you know, often over the years, we began with this question of how do I bring my dharma, how do I bring this practice into my life, how do I sit more, how do I connect with teachings more, how do I bring the dharma into my life, and over time, the, the reframe may happen of how do I bring my life into my practice, so that your practice is the stake, stake in the ground. Your practice is the orienting point. Um, what matters most is taking care of your, of your awareness and being available, being available for the Dharma. So stability. Stability, it's a good word, it kind of sounds like what it is, stability. And in the teaching of these, of these 12 links we've been looking at, I, I uh, associate this quality of stability, of course, with samadhi, with unification, with collectedness. There's great stability that comes as the mind gathers um, here and now. And there's also a fair bit of stability with faith. When we have faith, we have something to put our heart upon, and there's a resting in that. So, a few things that are stabilizing, and I'm gonna be giving you little suggestions about how to be continuing. Again, a lot of this you already know, but it never hurts to have reminders like daily practice. <laughs> daily practice. It's really, really important for the early years of my practice. I. I did zero daily practice. I would mad madly sit every retreat I could, but I didn't do any sitting in between. And um, boy, did things change when I started having a daily practice. It's like a sense of everything coming together. Daily practice is stabilizing, and clarity of intention is stabilizing. So if you have days where you, it doesn't happen that you're able to do a formal sitting or practice period, take some time at the start of the day and set an intention. That goes a very, very long way. It's difficult, you know, it's difficult to respond to much of anything without a sense of inner steadiness, inner, inner stability. And if you're someone who feels that, especially at this time, at this time, this administration, if you're someone who feels that sitting isn't enough, um, you know, you need access to some deep well, to some reservoir inside you of something that is not distraught, something that is stabilizing 
and has a measure of peace because um, that's what sustains us. And the deepest stability comes from knowing the ground, comes from not getting enchanted with all the drama, not getting enchanted with the drama of your mind. You know, it's possible to slowly learn about what's happened when you've been on retreat without adding the drama. It's impactful. I know it is impactful. But there's no need to add the, the extra there. And so stability is really from putting, putting your attention in the womb of awareness. Wise attention. Your attention right now. It's simple, direct womb of awareness and this gift of attention and this, you know, it's like a miracle, the capacity for attention. And you know how to, how to work with attention, how to direct attention. And, and how we work with our attention shapes our world in large measure. It gives us our world. So this practice offers a kind of stability that comes from the Dharma of peace, the Dharma that's here and now that comes from um, really being in touch with a heart that resonates, that um, knows something other than separation. And to cultivate this quality of stability, which is so valuable as you travel tomorrow, as Philip mentioned this afternoon in the hall, You've got to be connected to your body. You know? As simple as just not forgetting, right? Hands, feet, breath. You know, if you're going to the airport, you know, and your CNN is blaring at you and people are running around and, you know, you don't know how to use the kiosk. Hands, feet, the earth element, connecting with that earth element, stability. And so really, um, it's, it's this kind of stability and ground that allows our sensitivity to be what it is. Stability and sensitivity go hand in hand because the waves are going to come. Something's going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> you know, something's going to touch you. Maybe you'll be just happy and peaceful and awesome, or maybe you'll feel jarred. Um, or a sense of disorientation. And so in, in going back to the rest of, of life, it's not so much that the aim is to be steady all the time. It's more to allow the waves to come and to keep rolling through. You know, no need to fight the waves. Um, with some of the sh feelings that were shared in the small groups last night and in the hall this afternoon, and I know in the other groups, um, the practice is to actually allow ourselves to be impacted and to have some measure of equanimity, some measure of just this practice of widening and softening and widening and softening as, um, as the waves pass through. And sometimes, you know, going back into daily life can be so beautiful. I remember sitting a meta retreat here and I'm not really a city person. I can do cities, but I prefer not to spend time in cities too much. And uh, I was—I had to take the BART somewhere. And so I was on the BART with my big backpack, and I had just done um, a long retreat with doing metta practice. And I was on the BART, and it was like, I don't know, it was the most amazing ride because I was, I was seeing everybody on this subway differently. I was interested in them. I was seeing the humanity in them. You know, I it was just a sense of feeling this common humanity and care. And I thought I would dread Bart, and I loved being on Bart because of what had happened in my practice. There was just more, more connection. This quality of stability, as I was reflecting, I was, I was uh, thinking about like who, you know, who embodies stability? What is, you know, what's an image of stability and 
what came to mind were the water protectors at Standing Rock. You see those pictures of people standing, clear, direct, non-reactive, embodied, anchored. You know, I was remembering this picture I saw of, of this person just sitting in what looked like a very cold and wet. I'm from North Dakota, so I appreciate how cold North Dakota gets. Um, just sitting with such ground, as cold, wet, and there were police vehicles, and the light was kind of um, edgy. It looked chaotic, you know, there had been violence there. And, um, you know, like Ajahn Suchito talked about, relentless patience. Just relentless patience, the stability of that. We can just kind of, oh yeah, right. I can call that up. Winona LaDuke, who's a great inspiration to me, she's a woman who, when I met her, that was really what struck me about her, was just this sense of incredible stability and, and presence. And she says, uh, because stability and power go hand in hand, really, it's part of a personal sense of power. She says, one of our people in the Native community said the difference between white people and Indians is that Indian people know they're oppressed, but don't feel powerless. White people don't feel oppressed, but feel powerless. Deconstruct that disempowerment. Part of the mythology that they've been teaching you is that you have no power. Power is not brute force and money. Power is in your spirit. Power is in your soul. It is what your ancestors, your old people gave you. Power is in the earth. It is in your relationship to the earth. In your relationship to the earth. So, you may, uh, you may have experienced this kind of rush of energy <laughs> yesterday or today. Sometimes when we get off retreat, this can be such a, oh, I'm so happy to see everybody. I've got all this energy. I'm buoyant. And, and you, you may feel that when you go back home. But that kind of energy, it usually crashes. It's usually not sustainable. <laughs> so I would urge you to kind of consider, it depends on how you roll, but you might go at 30% or 70%, not 100% full on with the energy, because if you're like me, you'll wind up in bed. <laughs> so, so you might just um, be aware of uh, less is more. Pace yourselves. And you can ask yourself, just simply, what does the practice of the Dharma bring to this moment? If you don't know what to do, or you're feeling like nervous, you know, about what's going on, what does the practice of the Dharma bring to this moment? Because you, you do know that. After one or two months or a lifetime of practice, you do know that. Second, a second uh, quality of well-being, which is all over transcendent, excuse me, liberative dependent origination, right? The, the, the joy, the pity, the happiness. And there's actually well-being in disenchantment and dispassion, even though it might not feel quite like that. There's well-being in the, in the deeper letting goes that, that happen. And... I just want to encourage you to tend to tend to your own well-being fiercely, radically, <laughs> to really tend to your own well-being. You know, there can be a sense of, oh, I've been away, I'm feeling a little guilty, I've got to catch up with everything right away. You know, just to go back home in a way that honors the depth and kind of sacredness of what's, of what's happened here. Um, it's important in my experience, kind of who you choose to talk to about your experience here and how you do that. And what I've found is that 
most people, when they ask about how the retreat was, most people don't really want to know. You know, so I say, it was great, I learned a lot. And then they're like, oh, can you take out the garbage? Okay, great. (laughs) But there are those people who um, do want to know and who can listen and hear. And it's, it's really valuable if you have people in your life, you know, that you feel like can, can hold your experience in a certain way. Um, just, just bring attention to how you share and don't share your experience. Um, there's, there's, there's energy in the sharing. And I would, I would urge you to, if you're going to share really deeply about what happened here, to be mindful you know, because when you share something that's like so profound um, with somebody who doesn't really get it, it doesn't invite that to keep living through you. It, can, it kind of t- tends to support it shutting down a little bit. So share deeply with the people who, you know, care enough to try to get it. And oftentimes there's a feeling of like, especially if you're going back to a Dharma community, if you, there can be a sense of, I've, I've got to come up with the story of all the stuff that happened on my retreat. And you don't. <laughs> you don't. You, ha- you can say, you know, I'm not quite ready to talk about it. Or I'm, I'm still cooking and I, um, I'm just, I'm, you can say you're not ready to talk about it. You know, because it is like the second half of your retreat and the retreat will keep working you. So there, there's no need to get fixated on this is the retreat story. I mean, in one way, a narrative can be very, very helpful, but, but you don't have to present and become some version of a retreat story. It's still working you. It doesn't stop working you tomorrow at 11 a.m., Audre Lorde, I've really been enjoying Audre Lorde's writing. She says, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. Caring for yourself. We've heard so many of you, you know, have gotten sick this month since we've been here. And it's been, it's been hard for many of you to give yourselves the rest that you've really needed. And then, you know, we hear ideas about that's lesser practice somehow and just resting and caring for yourself is um, such an important part of being available uh, available for the practice. And one of the greatest supports for your well-being is community. Um, actually, I'm going to share this poem by Jack Gilbert just about, about joy. It's, I'm sharing part of it, A Brief for the Defense by Jack Gilbert. And he's kind of like um, in defense of joy and not shutting it down. He says, if we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. We must admit there will be music despite everything. We stand at the prow again of a small ship, anchored late at night in a tiny port, looking over to the sleeping island. The waterfront is three shuttered cafes and one naked light burning. To hear the faint sound of oars in the silence as a rowboat comes slowly out and then goes back is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come. So uh, well-being, spiritual friendship is huge when it comes to well-being in your practice. I mean, Sangha is its own whole refuge. And even, even on the evening of the Buddha's awakening, you know, touch the earth, right? And with earth is my witness. You know, I have a right to be here. I'm going to sit here until I'm awake. And he was visited by Mara. You know, his, his, his liberation didn't actually happen um, in isolation at all. He was sitting with a tree. 
And this retreat, I, I and teaching team, we've talked a lot about how there's more diversity in certain areas on this retreat in terms of people of color, in terms of our alphabet sangha folks. There's more diversity um, than I think we've ever seen on long retreat here at Spirit Rock in this hall right now. And um, it's to be celebrated. It's to be celebrated what's happening to our larger sangha. And we've heard about the deep power of the POC group and the LGBTQI group and what a difference that has made in the container uh, for so many of you. And, um, you know, sangha, when we, when we tend to sangha and use sangha as practice and do our part to support a truly beloved community, it's, it directly supports realization, you know? It directly supports the collectedness and the deep, deep insight. They go hand in hand. So I've just been really happy to see the kind of forms of sangha that have developed here in this container. There's, there's um, a lot more to be done and things are, things are going in the right direction in many ways. So, so uh, you, you know, you, you can't, like no, nobody can do this for you. You've got to do your own practice, right? But, um, but you also can't do it alone. And often there can be a, you know, going home and wanting to find Sangha if you're not connected to Sangha so much. And there's so many great resources now. Please, uh, you know, check them out. We won't list them all. There's so many great resources. But to remember not only do you need Sangha, but you are Sangha. You are Sangha to others. You know, just a presence of, that, is, that is caring and open or willing to learn something or just showing up. You are Sangha. And people are often quite inspired, actually, by the people who sit these one- and two-month retreats. I've heard from people all over the world who have been holding what's been happening here in this hall and on this land. You know, all over the world, people hold this course, like they kind of do the the three-month course at IMS as well. And, um, and, 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 And there's a lot of strength to be drawn from that. This is a story. Some of you know the book Tattoos on the Heart by Gregory Boyle. So awesome. He's a Jesuit priest out of LA and founded this nonprofit called Homeboy Industries. And he works with gang members and, um, to really support them having lives, really, you know, not just more productive lives, but to, to um, if they get out of prison, to. It's a story about a four-letter word being tattooed on somebody's forehead and that's tattoo removal business. Wondered why he didn't get a job with that tattooed on his forehead. But Gregory Boyle is just doing, doing wonderful work in his book, Tattoos on the Heart, The Power of Boundless Compassion. And he, because he's a priest, he uses language, he uses the word God, and I'm, I'm just going to read what he wrote. That's his orientation, his way of explaining things. But this is really a story about well-being, a story about Sangha. He says, at Homeboy Industries, we seek to tell each person this truth. They're exactly what God had in mind when God made them. And then we watch from this privileged place as people inhabit this truth. Nothing is the same again. No bullet can pierce this. No prison walls can keep this out. And death can't touch it. It's just that huge. But much stands in the way of this liberating truth. You need to dismantle shame and disgrace, coaxing out the truth in people who've grown comfortable believing its opposite. One day, I have three homies in my car as I'm headed to give a talk. While I'm there, they set up a table and sell homeboy and homegirl merchandise. Our banter in the car spans the range of begging on each other. We laugh a lot, and I'm distracted enough not to notice that the gas tank is on empty. I lean into Jojo, the homie occupying shotgun. Oi, dog, be on the lookout for a gas station. He doesn't seem to wholly trust my judgment. He leans toward the gas gauge and dismisses my call. You're fine, he says. Como que? I'm fine. I'm on HLA, cabron. Waving at him, I say hello. E means empty. 
Jojo looks at me with bonafide shock. E means empty? Well, yeah, what did you think it meant? Enough. <laughs> It's so great. <laughs> well, what did you think F stood for? Finished. <laughs> After I thank him for visiting our planet, I realize that this is exactly how the dismantling process has to play itself out. Homies stare into the mirror and pronounce empty. This is not in the Buddhist sense. Homies stare into the mirror and pronounce empty. Our collective task is to suggest instead enough. Enough gifts, enough talent, enough goodness. When you have enough, there's plenty. Or if their verdict is finished, we're asked to lead them instead to fullness, the place within where they find in themselves exactly what God had in mind. It would be hard to overstate how daunting it is to conjure new images and to reconstruct these messages. Hmm. He's great. <laughs> hmm. I'll just um, one more nugget around well-being and, and going home is just the importance of sangha, nature. Nature is sangha. And there's a way that just spending time in the natural world is deeply regulating. It just meditates you. And uh, don't underestimate the power of going and sitting outside. Um, or if you're feeling a kind of compression in your senses or overstimulated, go outside some. You know, open up your mind like the sky. Let, let nature hold you. So, so um, you might consider the natural world as, as part of, of Sangha. And number three, confidence. In the transcendent, excuse me, liberative dependent arising, we grow to have confidence in the insights that happen, knowledge and vision. We have confidence as we begin to see deeper into the nature of reality. You know, Gill's talk on Nibbana Nibbana is worth having confidence in, that's for sure. Not that it's quite like that, but, you know, this path of waking up is worth having confidence in. And that's, that's right, that link of faith is where suffering begins to not be the end of the story, you know, where, where things really become workable. And as confidence deepens, as, as you no ground and you dwell more and more in presence, there's like a shift in the center of gravity. I, I like this language, I think it's from Joseph, I don't know where this came from, but this sense of being pulled into the orb of the Dharma, being pulled into the gravitational force field of the Dharma. So uh, this shift from a narrow sense of self separate to being pulled into the Dharma, like Ajahn Chah talks about. We, we, we practice the Dharma, we see the Dharma, we become the Dharma. And it takes, just takes a lot of trust uh, to stabilize in something more vast in this way and to allow this beautiful field of the Dharma to... Uh, You know, to not, to not hold back, really. But the good news is that it's like, well, what is happening here is so wholesome. <laughs> There is so much uh, merit, as I said in the beginning, so much wholesome karmic momentum from a period of practice like this. In my, in my own experience, it's palpable. So no matter what, you, you can tune into that. I hope that's something that you have a sense of for yourselves. I hope that's something that you can feel um, a friend of mine who's taught for many, many years talks about this, this field and this karmic momentum as being like, he's taught for a lot of years, being like um, the wind under his wings, the development of the merit. Like he feels that carrying him. There's just a lot of 
wholesome cultivation here. And, and so if you're thinking about your next retreat, schedule it. <laughs> After a retreat is a very good time when you're kind of feeling it, you know, um, or maybe you decided you're never coming back. Um, <laughs> but it's, um, it's a good time to start planning. This is a time to plan. It's a good time to start planning your next retreat. Um, and if you have just done, you know, a lot of like retreat practice, study is, is very helpful too. You know, there's some great, many courses in your communities and online. There's a sheet for resources for people who want to learn about white privilege, becoming more awake as white people, learning about white supremacy um, internally and externally. Um, so it's great to consider some study along with the practice. And, and you know, if you're interested in doing more retreat but you don't know how, I just want to put a plug in for, for setting strong intention. I, uh, I know for me, I've signed up for these retreats at different times thinking I have no idea how that's going to work out for myself. Like, how am I going to pay for that? How am I going to leave? Many times, and it's actually been remarkable. I, I don't want to be Pollyanna. And, you know, that Dharma takes care of those who take care of the Dharma. There, there is a support, a kind of, a, I guess I've just been supported so many times in ways I never could have dreamt when it's come to Dharma practice. And so I urge you to set strong intention in a way that's aligned with your heart if you are drawn to uh, do more practice in this way. It's interesting the, the, um, that kind of that, that momentum, of in, momentum of intention that's there without kind of having to do anything consciously. I, I, uh, and, and there can be a way that the Dharma just rises up to meet us, that, that your practice and all you've cultivated, you know, it just may be there when you don't even expect it. I had an experience not so long ago of, of seeing somebody I knew I was going to see them, and I hadn't seen them for a lot of years, like 10 years. And it was a difficult, somewhat of a difficult relationship. And I, I was really nervous to see them. I, had, I wasn't sure if I wanted to see them. And um, I remember walking up, um, walking up to meet them, you know, thinking it was going to be this hard thing and that I was going to be stuttering over my words, being so nervous or something. And I was like, all I felt was metta. And I, I couldn't have done that. You know, I couldn't have decided that, ever. It was 100% the cultivation that just rose up to meet me in that moment. It, it's, it, I was like looking to have difficulty with them in the present time, and it wasn't even there. It had only been there as a story in my mind. I was just like, wow, my, my practice just rose up. It's not always like that. <laughs> that's, that's a good day. It's not always like that. <laughs> but, um, but that does happen. I'm sure you, you've seen that happen in your own ways, in your own lives. And, and um, as the confidence deepens, you know, we, we, shift, we shift from my suffering to the suffering. There's a natural aspiration to want to show up in a way that's a benefit to all beings, and if you do this practice long enough, which each of you have, I mean, you know that our liberation is bound up together. You know that from the ultimate view, there is no um, personal enlightenment from the perspective of ultimate reality. It doesn't exist that way. So on the relative level, there's a sense, oh yeah, may, 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 May I be free from suffering. May all beings be free from suffering. And on the ultimate level, there's a wisdom of emptiness that really sees through the illusion of a separate self. We, we know that um, we know the truth of the relatedness. Toni Morrison says in her book Jazz, the function of freedom is to free someone else. So in this practice, we, we just keep widening to remember to remember that we are, you know, we're a family. <laughs> we're a family of beings along with Mother Earth and really life is much more of this 
dance of arising and passing in this in this womb of awareness, um, like Inder, Inder's net, you know, every part reflecting every other part. That's more of the truth of what we come to know directly through through this practice that allows us to live the Buddha's vision of peace, that allows us to live from a less separate consciousness, not as an idea, but as something that is known directly. So I'm gonna share a few more, more words this quote's shared a lot because it's, it's so good, but, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., when he gave the commencement address at Oberlin College in 1963, and he had gone to India with his wife, and he had seen the incredible poverty of that country, and he was realizing, you know, how much the destiny of what we're calling the United States and India were bound up together, tied together. All I'm saying is simply this, that all humankind is tied together. All life is interrelated and we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. For some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. Pure Dharma, huh? Pure Dharma. So we live the path. We, uh, we live the path, we practice the Noble Eightfold Path and the, the path is not external. It's not out there, it, it's more that the path becomes us and the path is not prefabricated, it doesn't already exist. Um, and so in this way, you know, this, this path of liberation is, it's alive. <laughs> the Dharma is alive here and now, alive. And something that's been probably the most helpful to me in just uh, bringing my life into my practice is, is to live with some measure of, of a vow. You know, the, the, the vow that's been helpful to me, one of many is, is um, the vow to use all that arises for my own awakening. And you could consider, you know, do you live with the vow to use all that arises for your own, for your awakening? And if not, why not? You know, all of this, but not over here. No, I'm, I'm gonna stay, you know, in a box or whatever over here, but it's like, oh, this vow means that we use illness, loss, injustice, outrage, delight, beauty, feeling disoriented, all of it, <laughs> all of it for our own awakening. And, and there's tremendous stability in this vow. There's well-being. There's a place of empowerment in, in, in setting that intention. And, um, you know, I know I kick and scream sometimes, like, this too, really? But it, but it brings... Um, it brings life more into accordance with, with truth and with what we long for most deeply. So you might consider, you know, this vow to use all that arises, all that arises through your own awakening and see, see what happens with that. And many of you, I mean, being here is such an enormous statement in that way too. So. I'll close with a poem. By a Bay, Bay Area. Every time I say Bay Area, now I think of Ruth's story, <laughs> being in China. And 
talking to Dr. Marlene Jones, where are you from? The Bay Area. <laughs> Allison Luterman. I don't know if she lives in Oakland or Berkeley, but she's a Bay Area poet. Um, called Invisible Work. Because no one could ever praise me enough. Because I don't mean these poems only but the unseen, unbelievable effort it takes to live the life that goes on between them. I think all the time about invisible work, about the young mother on welfare I interviewed years ago who said it's hard. You bring him to the park, run rings around yourself keeping him safe, cut hot dogs into bite-sized pieces for dinner, and there's no one to say what a good job you're doing, how patient you were and loving for the thousandth time even though you had a headache and I who am used to feeling sorry for myself because I am lonely when all the while as the Chippewa poem says I'm being carried by great winds across the sky thought of the invisible work that stitches up the world day and night the slow unglamorous work of healing the way worms in the garden tunnel ceaselessly so the earth can breathe and bees ransack this world into being while owls and poets stalk shadows our loneliest labors under the moon. There are mothers for everything and the sea is the mother too, whispering and whispering to us long after we have stopped listening. I stopped and let myself lean a moment against the blue shoulder of the air. The work of my heart is the work of the world's heart. There is no other art. So I'll just sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention and your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.